are listening to another episode of the Coach's Circle Podcast, brought to you by LifeCoachPath.com. Our goal is to explore all the different ways you can craft your own career in the fields of coaching, wellness, and mental health. Each episode features guests who offer an authentic perspective on their own unique career path and explores ways you might begin to craft your own. For more information on who we are and what we do, visit www.lifecoachpath.com. And now, here's your host, Brandon Baker. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Coaches Circle podcast. Today's special guest is Susan Pease Bannett. She is a licensed clinical social worker, trauma expert, and spiritual coach based in Portland, Oregon. She is also the author of The Trauma Toolkit, Healing PTSD from the Inside Out, and her most recent book, Wisdom, Attachment, and Love in Trauma Therapy. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brandon. Nice to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I know that as as listeners can tell from the intro, um, the focus of your work is um, on trauma and PTSD. Um, but before we kind of get into some of the, I guess, more nitty gritty details as to some of the challenges your clients are facing, and some of the techniques you use in helping them move past that trauma, um, can you just start us off with some more about your personal background and? Um, Kind of what led you to a career in psychology in general? Okay, that's a great question, and I'm happy to talk about that. Um, as a young person, um, and I was raised mostly in the Bay Area of California and Palo Alto pre.com, <clears throat> and it was a very exciting place to be for science. And for a while, I really wanted to be an astronaut until I found out that I had the worst motion sickness in the world. So (laughs) kind of an impediment. Yeah, that was off the table for me. Um, And when I was 16 um, uh, in high school, we read The Ego and the Id by Freud, Mm -hmm. which sadly, I don't think anybody reads that in high school anymore or even college. But um, it really um, uh, that coupled with Dune (laughs) really awakened me to a sense of purpose around the mind and also my fascination with the mind. And I realized that I would never get bored doing that kind of work. I'd mm-hmm. also um, done some internships in summer with uh, autistic children and I really loved working with them. And from that point on, it was just all about like, not whether I would become a therapist, but what kind of therapist I would become eventually and what kind of school I would go to. Right, right. And of course, like all therapists, I had my own issues. I mean, I think all humans have their own issues. Um, There's something with therapists that stick where we want to figure it out. And then by helping other people figure it out, we figure it out too. Hmm. Yeah, I I like that little last part you added there, because I kind of joke around with guests on the show that there are, you know, happy childhoods do not make great therapists. And um, it it seems to be the case very often where when I ask this question, both the therapists and coaches kind of tell me about your background. Almost always, it's some variation of X, Y, and Z went wrong. And it was a really tough time for me as a kid. And I had to, you know, understand why I was feeling all these things. And so it seems that there is a common thread, as you're alluding to, with um, therapists kind of having some some uh, less than ideal backgrounds. But I, I like that little added part that you mentioned there, that when you said everybody has these experiences. The difference is 
people that are drawn to therapy and now coaching often want to dig deeper as to why. So, yeah, I think that's a, a nice distinction to make. Um, yeah, so I know that your focus, as I mentioned, is um, trauma and PTSD. So one of the big challenges that the listeners of the show are facing right now in their early stage of their career is what niche do I occupy? Do I even occupy a niche at all? Or do I keep this all completely wide open? And, you know, it's kind of a really big topic. And you hear these phrases like, you know, the riches are in the niches and specialize, 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 and don't be a generalist. Um, so you- <laughs> Yeah. I never heard that saying. The riches are in the niches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. So, and obviously you've you've done that. I mean, your your niche is very well defined. But I wanted to ask you, um, kind of what what led you to choose this particular focus? Did did you start with a focus on PTSD and trauma, or is that something that your practice kind of evolved into? Uh, well, <laughs> this is how old I am. <laughs> when I when I started, there was no such field, um, <laughs> actually at all. Um, <laughs> okay. So I started. I graduated undergraduate in 1980, and um, I started doing some jobs in Boston that were were laying the ground for me to go to graduate school um, because in Boston it's very hard to get into a good. Um, even a good social work program for clinical psychology um, if you haven't had really good training and in um, work. So I worked in runaway youth shelter. I worked in uh, sort of a semi inpatient unit for artistic and psychotic children. I ran a group home for a while and I worked on the child at risk hotline for child abuse. Um, uh, so those um in the middle of that time, and that was like an eight-year, 10-year period of time, in 1985, um, 1984, 1985, there was a book that came out called Strong at the Broken Places by Lynn Sanford. And she was a local um, therapist and social worker who was running um, group homes. And she had put together um, how traumatized these children were. And she wrote about sexual abuse and the courage to heal came out during that period of time. Like this series of books came out that really, like, I literally remember us all just kind of waking up together, like, Oh my gosh. And then this kid and that kid and, and uh, things that hadn't made sense before um, started to make sense. Like in the seventies, um, forgive me if I get the, my history wrong. I think there was actually a diagnosis of nymphomania. Oh, <laughs> it was actually yeah. at one point a diagnosis, but we now know those kids are sexually abused kids or even trafficked kids. So um, there was a huge paradigm shift. And at the same time, publicly in the late eighties, um, Phil Donahue and Oprah Winfrey started doing a lot of shows about domestic violence and abuse and eventually sexual abuse. And eventually Oprah disclosed her own abuse and uh, the paradigm completely shifted uh, towards the late eighties, early nineties. And uh, all it, even with the autistic kids, cause I'd run a group home for autistic children um, in my late twenties. Uh, it, it even made sense because the, these kids had been so traumatized in their various ways that a lot of that description fit their behavior as well. So um, I became intrigued with that and um, started to view my own history through a trauma lens, even though my therapist at the time was a sort of classically trained 
psychodynamic psychotherapist and she didn't really have trauma language. So, but I was in there at the very beginning and working in the Harvard teaching hospitals and going to workshops and met with Bessel van der Kolk. And yeah, it was a really exciting time. And um, I started heading more that direction. And then when I went into private practice after my kids were born, um, I, I was hounding my husband for referrals and he's a interventional cardiologist. Mm-hmm. So he started sending um, heart patients my way. And what I found out about the heart patients he was sending my way is they, they had some of the heaviest loads of trauma that I had yet had. So, um, so that kind of took me more in a trauma direction. And then eventually I stumbled into the area of very severe abuse, organized crime, ritual abuse, and other things um, that honed my work further. And also because I'd been in the field for so long at that point, um, I was ready for um, a sort of higher degree of difficulty. Right. And, um, and then in my early 40s, I hit a new wave of my own trauma. And I was working, ironically, at that time with a shaman <laughs> who had been an Ericksonian therapist. And um, the techniques that he helped me with, I put in my book, The Trauma Toolkit. So it kind of all sort of just sort of flowed into the same place. Uh, and I, you know, I also was trained as a yogi, um, yogini in the late 80s. I was going to the Kripalu Center and doing a lot of yoga and I started to realize that a lot of yoga teachings are also about alleviating trauma in the body mind so that the mind can be still. Mm. So, yeah. So it's like life has taken me on this trauma journey and kind of digging deeper and deeper into the underpinnings of mental health issues. Right, right. Perfect. Yeah, that was um, I'm, I'm impressed that you have that entire history so well understood. <laughs> you know, sometimes when I ask that question, the the response is a bit like, yeah, well, hmm, let me think back on how it is that I actually uh, got involved in this. But your understanding is, is quite lucid. So, um, yeah, so thank you for taking us through that. I wanted to transition into the, that trauma work. And specifically, I guess the, the reason why uh, your work was interesting, I guess, to me is because, you know, so much evidence has come out and this is both in the therapy space and also coaching as well. It, it really applies to both. So much evidence has come out that the heavy lifting of, you know, transformative work, both in therapy and coaching, is the, it's really the relationship between the practitioner and the client. It's not, it's not, I mean, yeah, we, we can talk about uh, techniques and kind of, you know, philosophies behind coaching and therapy. Uh, you know, we can talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and all these different uh, methods that are being used. Um, but but really, it seems that the heavy lifting here is, is the relationship um, between, between the two. And that's why the book that I mentioned, Wisdom, Attachment, and Love and Trauma Therapy, um, definitely, I think, is pertinent to, to listeners of the show. So I wanted to give you the chance to tell listeners what that approach is all about that you outline in the book. And, um, you know, because the listenership of the show is primarily coaches, if you can maybe gear your explanation maybe toward also what coaches can apply in in their own work. Sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, my, I've made a full circle journey on that when I started. Like I said, there was no trauma field yet, <clears throat> but there was a heavy emphasis in psychoanalytic psychotherapy about the relationship and then analysis of the relationship or what we call analysis of transference. 
And that's the piece that coaches don't do. The coaches um, don't, coaches don't analyze transference and they don't dive back into origins and deep mm -hmm. subconscious motivations of behavior. It may come up in coaching, but really coaching is to me more about the relationship and having that person there in the here and now who can help guide you through whatever it is you need coaching on <laughs> at that moment in time. Right. And um, the relationship uh, was also foundational in my training as a psychodynamic therapist. And then shortly after, um, by the 90s, I would say, there was a rise of what I call alphabet therapies, you know, DBT, CBT, yeah. MDR, like all, all the alphabet therapies, all the techniques. And some of them are really good and powerful, but none of them really work if the relationship is poor. Um, in the therapy, and there's tons of studies to show that. And over and over, they've done these huge meta-analyses that show that really, it almost doesn't matter what technique you're using. It matters. The quality of the relationship is what matters. So that's why I wanted to write a book that because I felt like at least in the therapy field, and I don't know about coaching trainings because I don't go to them, but in the therapy field, we really had drifted very far away from relationship as the basis. And I wanted to pull us back to that because it is the only thing that works. And that's why friendships are so important. So to focus on the relationship, um, uh, it's absolutely necessary for people to move forward, for them to feel like they are being held in a relationship with somebody who cares about them and their progress. I mean, that's a simple thing to say. It's a little bit more difficult to execute in real life, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, especially because people sometimes have very um, unhealthy patterns in their relationships when they're seeking help. But there was a really great book written by three psychiatrists called A General Theory of Love. Um, and I can't remember when it came out. I want to say the 90s, but it might have been the 2000s. <clears throat> and they said this remarkable thing. They said, the only thing that heals uh, the limbic brain, which is our mammalian emotional brain, <clears throat> is um, in therapy is sitting with a person with a more healed limbic brain. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So because there's this limbic resonance they talked about, mm -hmm. there's mirror neurons on limbic resonance that sets up between two people almost as a field of interaction. And if the coach um, is less healed than their client, if the, if the coach is more dysfunctional than their client, it may not go well. And the client will sense that and have some unease around that. Um, and likewise, it's also, you know, there's, even in the spiritual world, the what they call it transmission between guru and student, <clears throat> the transmission is this field of calmness and centeredness and peaceful groundedness that gets transmitted to the shishya, to the student in that setting. So again, it's about the relationship, but it's also about that the person who's, who's got the power in the relationship is a... Um, highly functioning, uh, peaceful person. Right, right. Yeah. And actually, this is exactly why one of the um, points of emphasis that I place in my discussions with, with coaches, especially, is that 
you know, coaches in that very beginning stage often do feel what they describe as, you know, imposter syndrome or, you know, not being good enough or, or you know, whatever the coach describes it as. And the the reason why I emphasize that that is something that while it might not completely go away, it must be at least addressed because you don't want to be in a coaching relationship with a client and kind of, you know, it's like the tip of an iceberg. It, it kind of rears its head in ways, yeah. you know, you're, you're trying to suppress it, but it's always going to find a way, especially when having these really heartfelt conversations about real psychological issues um, or challenges, I should say, in a coaching uh, capacity. Um, you know, you, you don't want that feeling of um, being an imposter or being less than to, to rear its head because it's going to make the relationship weaker. Um, right. And it's not going to have that same, you know, transformative effect that you might have hoped for if you had been in a more, I guess, um, I, I don't know what the word is, but a more complete state, right? Um, so yeah, it, it's it's interesting how you know information from completely different angles point to the same end result. I mean, um, we weren't really yeah. talking about imposter syndrome per se, but I think it ties into what you're saying. It does. I've thought a lot about imposter syndrome because um, it's very prevalent with therapists um, and even some therapists who've been working for quite a while. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think I have a lot of thoughts about it. One is that um, I meet a lot more women than men with it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a function of our relative newness into equality with men in the workplace only in the last generation. Um, I think I see it a lot in more in people who are descended from cultures that weren't to the manor born. Like I am pretty Irish and um, I had to struggle with it for a really long time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> I still struggle with it sometimes. Whereas, yeah. you know, my, my Protestant um, white, tall, Aryan looking husband doesn't struggle with it ever. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, so, I don't think anybody would be surprised to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of have a bit more of a controversial view that I think I think women are just more discerning than men in pretty much all respects. But I mean, that that's that's kind of my, humbler, maybe. I yeah. Know. Yeah. I, I think it's more that. But anyway, sure. Yeah. Um, well, and that, well, that was my part, too, was I think there's a certain kind of humility when you really see the vista when you really, really take a good look at the vista of the human mind and you know what you're wading into, it's humbling. It's like, you know, taking on the ocean. Yeah. Like, yeah. like you'd be stupid to take on big waves if you didn't know how to swim. Mm -hmm. Right. And even if you do know how to swim, you've been crunched enough times in those waves to know that, that um, you're never going to really master it. You're going to just uh, have to stay vigilant and knowledgeable through what you're going through because at some point, everybody, um, even the most confident coach or therapist is going to crash and burn at some point. And then that teaches you that that teaches you. And that also tells us not to that we are we imposters, but the, that is part of the journey. That process of being humbled is is part of gaining wisdom. It's a necessary part of gaining wisdom. And we're not great in this culture at acknowledging failure as a teacher. Right. Yeah. One one way that I like to look at it, kind of similar to to what you were saying there at the end, is imposter syndrome is just basically a recognition of the space between where you've been and where you're going or where you currently are, and it's that recognition that points to something valuable 
you know it, it points to you know you you understand that you're making a jump that you're in unfamiliar waters um and so yeah it, it's just it's just a cognizance of that gap and exactly. yeah I mean, an acceptance I, of it right right um embracing it even because it's it's something that i think any body shifting careers or even shifting within a career shifting your your focus in your work whether you change your niche or you change your target audience or you change your business structure whatever the case may be um it's just it's just an understanding that things are different than they used to be and um i think i think reframing it like that is kind of step 1 to understanding that, okay, this is okay to feel this way, right? Yeah, and it's also a trusting of the container itself. So I, I did, for 10 years, I did a workshop for beginning therapy interns at a, a, a local agency. And I used to just say, like, if, if you are starting on time and ending on time, and you don't make it about yourself, <laughs> yeah. um, and you're kind, you're doing therapy, you know, like, you know, that's the basic container for coaching or therapy is just holding that container. And there's something just magical about the container itself. Whereas if that's all you do, there's still something happening. There's still a fire cooking something there. Right. And especially bringing this full circle, especially because it is about the relationship. Um, yes. Keeping that in mind, it's not necessarily about having all the the, the the best and brightest techniques and kind of, you know, that's all great. And that kind of fills the work out. But um, understanding that it is the relationship, especially in coaching relationships, I might I might say, because in some coaching relationships, all the client really needs is kind of a listening ear to um, express themselves with, you know, it's not it's not like a, a trauma client or a, a, tr a client suffering from PTSD where, okay, at, you know, in that, in that respect, they need more than just a listening ear. And, you know, but we, in a, in a coaching relationship, honestly, it's, it's sometimes just that, that they need. So just to yeah. kind of take the pressure off of yourself a little bit. Yes. Yeah. And just to know that, you know, this too is part of the human condition. Right. right. Yeah. Um, you know, something that uh, shifting gears a little bit, something that comes up on the show a bit, um, is is Reiki. I know that you are uh, certified as a Reiki practitioner. So yeah. um, I wanted to just briefly just touch upon your your Reiki work and how it is that you came across Reiki and why you feel it, for some clients, it, it offers a benefit beyond just traditional, you know, I guess what you might call talk therapy. Yes, I um, basically I had my butt kicked by some clients who were very um, shamanic, and they wanted to know why I wasn't using my hands. And I've had many readings where people like, why aren't you using your hands? And finally, I was like, okay, I've got to figure out a way to bring that ability to my work. And what's the best way to do that? And then I found that some therapists had started and social workers had started using Reiki in their practice. So it seemed like it was within my scope to do that. So um, I did that. And what I found was that there's kind of like a, you know, there's, you know, you studied math, the area under the curve. So the area under the curve, the bell-shaped curve of mm -hmm. people who are available for therapy. And then there's the people who are not yet well enough or regulated enough, maybe is a better word, to utilize coaching or therapy. And then there's the area, of, you know, the opposite side of the curve where people consider themselves like not needing any help. Um, so there was always this group of highly traumatized people that would come in and they really weren't available for talk, talking work. They would just fall apart. 
and Reiki, I found to be very useful. I would give those, those are the people who would cry through an entire session yeah, um, or just be tremendously uh, panicky um, or having panic attacks. And those are the people that I would give them one to three sessions of Reiki um, as we were starting up and it would really change things for them. And I do think there's something about touch as a, a sense when pe- when you, when people touch us, there's a whole other sensory system that gets engaged about whether that person is safe or not. And once you've touched somebody and they accept your touch as being safe and nurturing, they feel a lot more free to open up to you. Um, so Reiki has been really helpful in that way. Um, and it's also been uh, very protective for me because Reiki, when you're attuned to Reiki, it gets into your system. And it prov- and if you're a very sensitive person, um, as I am and many coaches are, I know, I know some co- coaches personally who are, um, we all kind of need some buffer um, so that we don't get vicariously traumatized or just too unduly affected by people's energies. And Reiki really helps helps me and other people with that, with calming down. And, and as I'm giving it, I'm getting it as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. really remarkable. I mean, we wouldn't have enough time to go into all the benefits of Reiki, but uh, it's also, you know, very widespread. It's in 800 hospitals and it's also in mental hospitals and it's growing, it's continuing to expand. It's, it's in hospice. It's in a lot of places. Right. Yeah. And that that increasing popularity is why I wanted to bring it up, because it is something that I'm starting to see offered more and more. And so, yeah, um, yeah that's that's what the show is all about. It's it's about kind of, uh, you know, bringing to light as many different approaches as possible. And, you know, listeners, if, if it sparks their interest, if it kind of uh, falls within their their, uh, you know, way of, of seeing the world and, and seeing the human mind, I guess, then. Um, then all the better. And I, I actually like how you started that explanation with with the bell curve idea, because, um, you know, it, and I'm sure you can agree, the last thing you want to do when you get a client who isn't responding to your, I guess, more traditional methods, the, the last thing you want to do really is build that relationship. You're one or two sessions in, you see it's not really working, and then you refer them out. Um, because, you're just not equipped or you just don't have the tools in your toolbox to approach this client from a different, a different direction. Um, and then you have the risk of the client feeling abandoned and adding to their, you know, already existing, um, you know, issues and, and, and trauma. So, um, so by, by adding this, by widening that toolbox, by incorporating Reiki, like you just described, you are covering more of that curve of that bell curve. And it's not, it's not, I mean, yeah, of course, that just means you're opening up yourself to, to a wider clientele. But I think more importantly than that, I think you feel more complete as a practitioner. <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't have, I don't necessarily have to refer people out um, right away if I know that I kind of have this other technique in my back pocket, so to speak. Um, yeah, you know. that that's, that's why, yeah, the more tools, the better. And when I was doing, there was a period of time when I wasn't doing therapy, I was doing trauma coaching only. Um, and I often found that people would get referred um, from their therapist to see me, or they would refer themselves just for the trauma coaching piece of it, but they would keep their therapist. So the right. same is true as a, for a coach, like you 
you might stumble into an area with somebody that's like, that's really not my skill set, but it doesn't mean you necessarily have to discharge them. I mean, of course, it depends on their resources and all that, that kind of thing. But there are other ways where people can use um, either therapist or coaching as a sort of adjunct of treatment to what they're the core of what they're doing. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I actually wanted to kind of uh, conclude the discussion with a question that I, I like to ask pretty much all um, guests on the show. I think it's illuminating to anybody in that beginning stage. Um, I think I think we can all agree on the rewards of coaching and therapy on the part of the of the therapist, I, I should say, you know, seeing that transformative change, having your, your, your client's face light up, seeing that aha moment right in front of your eyes. I think we all kind of know intuitively what we're all looking for, but the other side of it, the, the, the challenging side, I think differs from person to person. Um, yes. and so I wanted to ask you in your own personal journey as a coach and then as a therapist, which, by the way, is reverse of how it usually is, but uh, it's, it's usually therapist first and then coach. Um, but in, in your own personal journey, what has been the most challenging aspect that you faced and how have you worked to overcome that? What has been the most challenging aspect I've faced as a therapist? Yeah. So maybe the part that you didn't see coming or, or maybe... Um, yeah, something unexpected that you've had to maybe change about the way you do your work, about your business, about your own personal, um, you know. Uh, well, if, I, if I talk too much about that, <laughs> that, might, <laughs> that might affect you and your listeners a lot. But um, I think I will put it this way. Um, even though when I worked on the child abuse hotline in Boston, I was a supervisor and I heard 15,000 stories of child abuse in four years. So I heard a lot of stories. And what's really interesting about that work is that the stories I heard on the hotline were not the same stories I necessarily heard as a therapist. Um, mm. And there's lots of reasons for that. But I've heard, um, I think as I became more adept at sitting with people's pain and my own reaction to their pain, people would tell me more. <laughs> um, because people will, will only tell you what they think you're ready to hear because it's just too risky for them to tell you something that either A, you don't believe, or B, you can't handle. Nobody wants that in their coach or their therapist. So um, I think the hardest thing has been really hearing um, the real depths of cruelty and depravity and suffering in the human condition and um, working in those places with people in a very intimate and deep way as a therapist has been shocking and hard and has taken a toll at times. Um, and periodically throughout my career, I've needed to take breaks. I'm just coming off of a medical break, partly because I needed a surgery, um, feeling a lot better now. So, um, you know, that when we're working with humanity, we're working with all aspects of humanity. And that is in the room with us, whether we realize it or not. So um, part of my work right now is training therapists and potentially coaches to know how to respond when people reveal something that, that feels shocking, unbelievable, or just so horrible, you can't even wrap your head around it. Right. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because for anybody listening who is considering entering kind of a, a niche that 
have runs the risk of that perhaps secondhand trauma, or at least at the very least that, that, you know, weighing you down aspect of um, what, what can often happen to coaches and therapists. Anybody considering getting into one of those areas of focus should know beforehand that they need to take those proper precautions, take your regular breaks, um, have a, a plan in place for, you know, keeping appropriate boundaries and um, not letting the cumulative weight of all of the, um, you know, all that baggage that, that, you know, you don't want to be carrying all that around. So um, right. it, it's not so much of a problem when you're an executive coach, perhaps, and you're trying to help clients, you know, go from, you know, good to great, you know, that then you kind of run the risk a little bit less. But um, especially when dealing with things like trauma and, and PTSD, as you are, something to keep in mind. So yeah, thank you for, for bringing light to that. Um, yeah. So Susan, this has been great. I'm, I'm really glad to have gotten your perspective and I want to give you the chance to tell listeners where we can find more about you and, um, where we can check out uh, those books that I mentioned earlier. Okay. Thanks. Um, so my website is www.soupiesbanet.com, but it's also soupb.com, which is easier to remember like peanut butter, <laughs> soupb.com. <Okay. laughs> um, it's, I'm actually literally just started back at work yesterday. So I'm still working on getting my website totally um, ramped up, but it, it's getting there. Um, I do have, um, I do, I'm, I'm going to be doing more online work and classes because COVID, that's the great gift of COVID that yeah. has given to us. The great um, silver lining. That's right. The great silver lining. My books are, so um, Trauma Toolkit is available in every format, Kindle and whatnot. It's easy to find. There's, it's, easy, it's cheap to find used copies. It's in most libraries. Um, Wisdom, Attachment, and Love was written as a textbook. So um, if you're a professor or teacher, if you go to the Rutledge website, you can actually get a free e-copy for your own perusal. And it is being used in places like the California Inst Institute of Integral Studies and hopefully a, a lot more places um, soon. So you can check that out. Um, and that, that is also on Amazon and in other places. So, um, that's where you can find those. And then just also for people to know that I am going to be giving some Reiki classes this fall. And, um, I do a lot of consultation work for coaches and therapists. So, uh, I really love, um, doing that work and we can work quickly. So great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. I think you were a, a really perfect perspective here as your experience as a therapist and a coach. I think it gave listeners a lot to think about. Um, so again, that, that was Susan Pease Bannett. The website is suepeasebannett.com. Uh, thank you so much again for being on the show, and I wish you the best of luck, Susan. Thank you, Brandon. All right. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Coaches Circle podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to our show just as much as we enjoyed making it. If you'd like to check out a complete listing of all of the episodes on our show, head on over to lifecoachpath.com slash podcast. See you on the next one.